millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, NASA astronaut Mike Massimino takes us on an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe in his memoir, Spaceman. Mike Massimino served as a NASA astronaut from 1996 to 2014. A veteran of two space flights with the Hubble Space Telescope, Mike and his crews set team records for spacewalking time and he became the first person to tweet from space. He has played himself on the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory, was featured in the IMAX film Hubble 3D and has appeared frequently in television documentaries and on late night talk shows and news programmes. A graduate of Columbia University and MIT, Mike currently lives in New York City where he's a professor at Columbia and an advisor at the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum. And we're going to be talking today about Mike's memoir, Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe. Mike, great <laughs> honour to talk to you. Thanks for joining Neil, me. Neil, my pleasure. I, thank you very much for having me. It's fantastic to be here. Now, there's an anecdote at the beginning of this book about when you just started astronaut training, getting to meet Neil Armstrong and realising that everybody says to him where they were when they when he walked on the moon yeah. um, and you everyone, decided, who was, everyone who was alive anyway yeah. at that time and yeah. um, and you decided not to do that but mm-hmm. tell us where you were when we man first walked on the moon and what that meant to you i was six years old almost seven and i was in my uh living room in my my home just outside of new york city in, in long island in the suburbs of new york city and uh there was a there was such a big build-up to that you know the uh, the Apollo 8 mission at the end of 1968 that orbited the moon, and they came up with the, the picture, the Earthrise picture, of the first be the first guys to, to leave, uh, really leave the planet because they left the orbit and went somewhere else at the orbit of the moon, and they got to look back and they, you know, this famous picture of, of the Earth rising above the moon in the distance, first time that was ever seen. I remember that. I remember Apollo 10 flying down close to the moon, and I thought this was pretty amazing. When that day that they landed, the day of the landing and the walk on the moon, it was so important. And I don't know if it was because of the age I was at or what was what, what happened, but it really just grabbed me. It, it's just some of my I have memories before then, but these are, my, I guess, maybe my first really substantial uh, memories at age six, where I can certainly, maybe this timing was right, I don't know what was uh, going on, but it just really struck me and grabbed me down deep in my heart and my soul. It was like it was perfect timing for me, I guess, in my formative uh, time in my life as a, as a small boy. And I, and I, re- I realize this is, this is the most important thing going on now or ever 
this was it. This was going to mark our time. And I realized that as a little boy. But you're growing up in Long Island in a blue-collar Italian-American yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah. There's nobody around you who's, who's no. an astronaut. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And I guess, as, and especially maybe as I got, like, you know, the next year or two after that, I guess I, I started realizing who more, maybe, maybe more of who these people were. And they were these fearless military test pilots, of which I was not one. And I realized at a very young age that that wasn't me, you know. And, uh, and yeah, it just seemed it was out of the realm of possibility. It was just not something that people, like real people did. This was like a superhero thing. Uh, you know, regular people don't do this. No one I knew would, would ever do anything like that. And, and that this was impossible. And so I stopped thinking about it because it just like wanted to become... Superman or Spider-Man or you know, something that I could never attain. It just was impossible. So I was like, well, can't do that. And I completely forgot about it as a, as a possibility. I mean, I still was interested in the space program, mm-hmm. but, but it was just an interest. It wasn't anything I considered that I could ever do. You do go on to get into Columbia. It's an Ivy mm-hmm. League university. Yes. It's a major good, yeah. achievement in itself. Yeah. And, and you're studying... A type of engineering, yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah, industrial engineering, <laughs> yep. And then you're um, you're out on a date with the the woman who will become your your wife later yes. on, and you go to the right stuff, right. And what happens then? I remember when that when that movie was advertised that it came out, and seeing it advertised on television or wherever you know, and the coming attractions up for another movie, or and I was like, wow, this is this is really cool, you know. And we went to go see that movie, and it rekindled the dream and the thing that got me in that movie there were two things one was the 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 views out the window of of john you know john glenn orbiting the earth and watching him you know that this is in a movie of course you know so this is the actor was uh ed harris was the actor portraying john glenn you know just the expressions on his face and you know what what they depicted in the movie that he would see as they're orbiting the planet that sort of hit back to this very basic uh, little boy interest that I had. It, it almost like awoken that little boy again, seeing that. And that, and the camaraderie between the astronauts, that these are really cool guys, racing cars around the desert. Not that I would like, I don't like driving very fast. But they were, you know, they were having fun and sticking, sticking by each other, the way they portrayed the camaraderie between those guys, how they would stick by each other, support each other. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be one of those guys again. Just like I did when I was six, but now I was twenty-one, almost twenty-two, getting ready to graduate Columbia, looking for a job and so on. But I, I had this; it awakened it. It awakened that little boy dream. And so, I mean, you end up at MIT, which is mm-hmm. the perfect place to be positioned. It is, if you, yeah, if you, it's a good place to go. Yeah, but you apply for the wrong course. <laughs> yeah, that was part of him. Well, what had happened was, is uh, you know, this is when I applied to MIT, I still wasn't thinking necessarily about the space program. In fact, I wasn't. In fact, I think after my application was in is when, is when I saw the right stuff. But Because I think the applications were due like December, and, and I saw the right stuff in January. So, But I still wasn't thinking about it being a serious possibility. It just awoken the dream and the interest. But it still was a while before I actually said I wanted to do this to myself. But, um, but yeah, so I applied to something that, uh, to the wrong, I applied to the wrong program. I applied to, uh, I was interested in the, in the way that technology and, and science and engineering is influenced by political and economic factors. And there was this program, Science, Technology, and Society, a wonderful program that I applied to. But when I got accepted, 
And then when I went up with my dad, we went up there for a visit. He, he came with me up there, took a day off from work. We drove up to MIT from New York, and uh, and I realized that uh, that I applied to a to a political science department, and I didn't realize that's what I had done. And uh, yeah, so I was like, well, I guess because the guy was like, you're in a, you're in a, there's another program that's that's titled close to it. It was called technology and policy. So instead of science and technology and society, which is who I did apply to, I should have applied to technology and policy program. But it was close enough, I guess. I, you know, but I ended up applying to the wrong program. Yeah, that's me. The other thing that happened roughly around this sort of same time when you were sort of rekindling the idea of, of becoming an astronaut was the Challenger disaster. So what yeah. impact did that have on you? That happened, um, and just, just to finish up on the other thing, I applied to the wrong program, so I had to apply to the right one after. Yeah. I wasn't able to get away with it, so I had to... I mean, it wasn't, wasn't the right one for me, so then I switched and, and was able to get that straightened out. But um, right about a year out of college, um, and I didn't go to MIT right away. I, I, I deferred admission there. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do for research and so on. So I worked for a couple of years, and um, it was when I was working after about a year or so that I decided I needed to try to do to do something with the space program, and, and uh, I used that time to try to think about the research I could do. And at that time, as I, I had made the decision I was going to go to MIT after two years of working, and I was still working, finishing that time up, when the, uh, when the Challenger disaster happened, you know, the, the, the Challenger launched and, and blew up uh, right after it left the launch pad. And um, you know, this was what I was deciding I was going to go to graduate school to do, and in some ways, it just made it more important. I felt like when it, when I saw that happen, like I realized that was happening. I realized it was an important thing that it happened. It was a terrible thing that happened. But I also realized again that there was somewhat of an emptiness because I wasn't a part of it. I didn't know those people. I felt like I felt close to what was going on because it was such an important dream to me. But I knew absolutely no one involved. I didn't know any of the flight controllers. I didn't know any of the astronauts, obviously. I didn't know anyone at NASA. And in some ways, it was almost an empty feeling that this is what I think is very important and not ha- and, and it just this bad thing just happened. And I'm not, I can't help it. I, I'm not a part of it. I don't know any of these people. And I, I was just being an observer, I guess, you know, an interested observer of what was happening. And it, it made me realize that you know, I, I wanted to be a part of it and, and that this was so important. Again, it kind of it reinforced the, the importance to me of the space program, that when this happened, it was a national tragedy. And it's because they were doing something important something that I thought was important, and it just made me want to be a part of it more, some strange way. It didn't scare me off at all. Caitlin Doty, check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. Well, you say at that, at that point you didn't know anybody at NASA. Yeah. What you do do is you get a, a summer job down in Huntsville in, in Alabama. Yes, yeah. That was um, years. That was later on. That was when I was in graduate school. Yeah. But that yeah. means that obviously you you know you're working, you're getting useful experience, but yes. it also means a lot of networking. Yes. Yeah. It's true. And I think what I found was is that. Um, you know, taking these steps as you uh, proceed during to a dream, you know, you, or you, you take this road that is 
there's a great quote by Thoreau that I can't remember right now, but it's, you know, if you, if you walk in the direction of your dreams, you'll meet with a success uh, uncommon in normal hours or something. I'm, I'm butchering it up here. But, but basically the idea is you, you take those steps mm-hmm. and all of a sudden things start happening that allow you to be, uh, the opportunities happen and come up in front of you that allow you to be successful and take you along this journey. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. Once I, once I went to MIT and started taking those steps, and then when I took some of the jobs that you mentioned in NASA, I started meeting lots of people in the space program. And, and when you start meeting people in the space program, a lot of them want to be astronauts. Some of them were. I got to meet a couple astronauts here and there. And it, it didn't seem crazy anymore. And it started to, I started to find people that were sort of part of this space community. They were part of the space community that I wasn't a part of before mm-hmm. then. That's when you know. That's when things started taking more and more shape. It still seemed to be impossible. There was never a point where I figured, yeah, I'm going to become an astronaut. Even after I was selected, I had this belief. Even now, after done it, after doing it, I still like I can't believe I actually did it. But I always had this this sense that it oh, could still never happen. But at least I was, I was trying to take those steps to get there and meeting people who influenced me and helped me along the way. But it's it's obviously less of an impossible dream than it was for that boy playing in the garden in Long Island. Absolutely, yeah. It started to be maybe it could happen. And it, one, one major thing that happened was the program changed. Um, it was primarily military test pilots in the, in the Mercury program, that's all it was, mm-hmm. and the Gemini program, that's all it was. For Apollo, they did, they did start picking a few scientist astronauts. And that was, they had one geologist flew, one scientist flew. On the last one. On the last one. Harrison Schmidt was the 12th person to ever set foot on the moon. And he was a PhD in geology. Then a few of the scientists, the astronauts that they had picked during the 60s, flew on Skylab in the early 70s. Um, and then some of them stayed around and flew on the shuttle. But it was the, really the shuttle program that opened up the doors for people of color and for women. The first women in America were picked um, to be astronauts. Uh, the first people of color were picked. And it was also different shapes and sizes. I happened to be six foot three inches. I'm not sure what that adds up to in metric. I'm sorry. No, but we I was do, too, we I was, do foot and inches. Okay, all right. I was, I was much taller than... Especially uh, now after Brexit. Okay, great. Okay, there you go. So <laughs> I was much taller than, uh, than what the restrictions would be for the early astronauts. Mm-hmm. So I would never have been eligible. It, but then the shuttle program came and opened it up for, for all types of and sizes and also occupations. It was more... It was still military test pilots, but the mission specialists, the people that were going to do the experiments in the spacewalks and work the robot arm and that all that and other than flying the vehicle they were going to be mission specialists who were people who could come from the military but also from the civilian world who could be more academics scientists medical doctors i've even flown with a veterinarian in space uh, oceanographer geologist so on these are some of the people i flew with but all these different science engineering professions were now eligible to become to make you an astronaut and so I, there was a little bit of hope there as well. In other words, I was eligible. So before I would have been ineligible, but mm-hmm. at least now I could work towards getting the credentials so at least I could be eligible and then still have a one in a million chance after that. So at least you, it was one in a million as opposed to zero. Yeah. So, so now you're, you're eligible, as you said, and you're in the position mm-hmm. where it, this thing is feasible. But yeah. as you, you mentioned in the book, you know, if you, if you want to become a doctor, you know, you'd you do pre-med. If you want to yeah. become a lawyer, you go to right. Harvard Law School. You know. Yeah, yeah. How do you become an astronaut? That's, uh, that's the thing, is that there's really no one path. And people ask me, I know a lot of, a lot of young people uh, 
people of all ages ask me, what, what do I need to do? Or what do you do to become an astronaut? And the, the answer is you do what you love and what you like. I, I, I wouldn't do anything to become an astronaut. I would do um, something that you enjoy doing and then find out as much as you can about the space program uh, and try to work in it and contribute, learn as much as you can. But as far as the core of it, which is going to be your, let's say, your career or your occupation or what you're going to study, I think that should be decided maybe with the astronaut job kind of in mind, but not necessarily as the main criteria at mm-hmm. all, even far from that. And if, you, if you're interested in being a pilot or a military person, I mean, those are decisions you should make based on whether or not you want to be. You don't have to be a military person to become an astronaut. So if you're interested in the military, you should go into the military because you're interested in the military. And oh yeah, by the way, that makes you eligible to be an astronaut. If you're interested in being a medical doctor, you should do that because you want to be a medical doctor. But yes, that also qualifies you to be an astronaut, as does engineer or any type of scientist. Or even, uh, I mentioned my friend Rick Linehan, who's a veterinarian. He loved animals, and that's what he wanted to do, was to be a veterinarian. But that's what he did. But it's a science. So it's a hard, you know, it's a hard, rigorous science, a field of study where you're you're hands-on working on animals and dealing with science. So perfect, you know, that qualifies you to be an astronaut. So you should do something that you really love. But still, right now anyway... It still has to be of somewhat of a technical nature. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you study history, that's great, but the likelihood you'll become a career astronaut at this point, it's unlikely. But eventually, we're all going to be we're going to need writers and artists and all types of people going to space. But right now, it's still the applications are still somewhat restricted to people with a technical background of some sort. It's a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but let's imagine I've got a uh, you know an advanced PhD from MIT, yes. and I'm thinking of applying. Right? Is there anything else that might make me uh, <laughs> ineligible? Uh, like your eyesight? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Eyes. you're right. Because you know the, people can't see this, but you're wearing glasses. Like I'm wearing contact lenses. Yes. Yeah, so uh, there's also the medical part of it, and uh, for me, back then the rules have changed for that. But progress always comes too late. But when I was applying. They still had fairly stringent eye requirements, even for the non-pilots, and I was medically disqualified. And my third attempt, I was I was rejected outright by NASA. My first two applications uh, over the course of a few years, and then the third selection that I applied to um, years later, I was called in for an interview, and that included medical exams, and and I was medically disqualified due to my eyesight. Which would have been more or less just kind of like saying, once you're medically disqualified, you're disqualified. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't become an astronaut. And uh, so that's not even saying that I, that I would have been picked, but I couldn't even be considered, which was very disappointing. The other thing that's going on at this time, we'll come back to the, uh, mm-hmm. to the saga of the eyes yeah, in a okay. moment. But um, okay. the other thing that you're doing is, you, you, at this point now, you, through the ap- various application processes, is that you're, you're working on the space program, yes. working on the on the. Yeah. Let's talk about the robotic arm program. Yeah, so I was. What you did. Yeah, and I was doing several things. I was I was getting uh, research. I was doing research up at MIT for my degrees on uh, human human control of, of robotic systems. I'll come back to that in a second. I was also doing things like I don't know if this is what you were asking earlier, but I also got a started. I got some flight hours. I was thinking mm-hmm. about trying to get a private pilot's license. I got a scuba rating. I was getting a lot of work experience during the summers. I was uh, I worked at NASA headquarters one summer, and then in, 
at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, a couple other summers I worked in Germany for the German Aerospace Research Establishment. So I was getting some good experience, and my research, what it focused on, as you mentioned there, was the the human-controlled robotic systems. So that's when you're you're sending a robot out there in a a hazardous environment, you're doing work with a robot, but you still have a robotic arm, let's say, but you still have a person controlling it. So this started to come up, in the history of it was back in the 1940s it started when we started handling nuclear material and that some of our national laboratories, they don't want people handling that, so they would have people controlling robotic manipulators around these, this material. So you'd be in a safe location, but you needed to control this robot arm and still do work. And then it's underwater applications as well. Submarines that go under the water, remotely operated vehicles that the operator is controlling from up top. And then space is the other, the other area. And air as well with, with drones, for example, controlling drones now is a manure application. But the case I was interested in, was controlling a robotic arm in space, whether it be on the space shuttle or space station or even on another planet. You know, if you had a, a rover on, on Mars, for example, and a person trying to control it, that there's certain information needed for that human operator to control that vehicle, just like a car or an aircraft. So you have a system that can run automatically sometimes, say whatever, my, a manufacturing process or some sort of vehicle or system, and you can model it, you can get equations of motion and figure out how it's going to work. But when you put an operator in there, now it becomes a little bit different because now you have a control system, but you have a human operator in that loop and how that person reacts or behaves or what they're able to, what they're able to do, what their limitations are and their capabilities are going to affect how your system works. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I became interested in, of how to help a human operator control uh, these robotic arms that would be in space. I'm Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go back to the, uh, the astronaut selection process mm-hmm. then. So there's various steps that you go through. Obviously, right. selection process, you need to qualify, you need mm-hmm. to have you know, lots of other attributes and aspects, you need to pass a medical test. Then you end up in front of the selection committee. Tell yes. me about that. Yeah, so the, the, the first few times I applied, I was just outright rejected. And then the second, the, the third time I got an interview, and it's a whole week. The, the you know you get coming for the interview. It's it's one, the interview itself is is one hour out of that week. You meet a lot of people. You have different events, and you have a lot of medical exams. But the interview itself is with the with the selection board. So, and the head of the selection board at the time was John Young, who was uh, the first commander of the space shuttle and and flew on the first Gemini mission flew twice on Apollo, including walking on the moon. So he's one of the 12 people. So he's his legend. So he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and he's a living legend, and he was still an active astronaut when I interviewed for the job back in the mid-1990s. And uh, he's at the head of it, and there's the, 
the first time I interviewed Hoot Gibson, the head of the astronaut office was there, along with about ten other astronauts were there. I knew I knew of them. I, I didn't necessarily know them, but I knew who they were. And then other people from NASA were there as well. Some you know, people from mission operations, from human resources, and people from around actually people from around the country too came in for this to be part of the selection board. And they would interview each of the candidates, and that's. That's I was one of those, so I got to walk in the room all dressed up in a, you know, uh, with a tie on and a suit, and and sat there and told them about about who I was. They asked, you know, they more or less just ask you, they tell you, just tell us about yourself since you were in high school. You know, what did you go to college? What did you decide to study? What did you do in your free time? And they just start a conversation because they want to get to know you. At this point, is what they're what they're looking to do. The first time you get all that way through the through the process. As you said, you're disqualified purely Excuse because me. of your eyesight. Yes, the first time I got in there, my eyesight just, just dinged me. It was done. I mean, it's obviously... Disqualified, sorry. There's no, no spoilers to give away to say that yeah. you actually do end up in space. How do you yeah. overcome something that we, we would yeah. think would, you know, absolutely disqualify? Yeah, you know, if they would have told me, well, you know, just get some more experience or we just had people better than, than you... That I would understand. You know, I didn't expect. You know, I, I realized who I was interviewing with. The other nineteen candidates that were there in my week, they they, they did twenty out of twenty candidates, twenty people at a time uh, for six weeks. So they interview one hundred and twenty people over a period of months, and then from the one hundred and twenty, they're going to pick how many they need. But you've already gotten whittled down from about you know thousands, five thousand people, and then they get you get down to the interview week, and there were military test pilots there, you know, who were at the top of their game. These are the best people in the, our, that our military has to offer, and scientists and engineers and medical doctors from around the country who are just extraordinary people. So I realized that you know what am I doing here? I'm very happy to be here. This is great just being here, um, and if I don't get picked, I understand why because these people are great people. So. That I would have been able to take, I think, but it was very disappointing that I wasn't even able to be truly considered because I was medical of my eyesight, and um, I couldn't try again either. That was the other thing was that I couldn't even be considered in another application. I couldn't keep trying because of my eyesight, and uh, I was given this news on a on a Friday, and just felt horribly about it over the weekend. In some ways, I was happy I got to that point and went through that experience. Because there was a part of me that that was saying, if I can only get to the interview, I'd be happy. If I can only be a finalist, and I got there, and that was quite an accomplishment. I remember there was a professor at MIT who had his resume. I remember seeing his resume. He was a very accomplished MIT professor, and at the top of his accomplishments was that he was an astronaut candidate finalist. And I was like, well, at least I got there. You know, that was that was great to get to that point out of a few thousand down. But it, I just didn't like the fact that I couldn't even apply any longer. So. I, I thought about it over the weekend, and I realized that they had told me no. They had told me I was medically disqualified, but it was because of my eyesight. And if somehow I could figure out how to see better, then maybe I could get that undone. Uh, they did not at that time uh, accept any of these surgical procedures like LASIK. This is 20, over 20 years ago. So those things weren't around long enough for them to say, yeah, it's okay. Um, now, now they accept some of these procedures, and, and actually, the vision requirements have relaxed. But that was only a couple of years ago. When I was going through this, there was still these these fairly stringent requirements. So, I didn't have to see perfectly. My, my vision was about twenty three fifty, twenty four hundred uh, was my acuity, and I needed to improve it to twenty one fifty, twenty two hundred. So, but that's where I needed to get to. So, a couple of lines on the eye chart 
which I couldn't see. I had to be able to see. And uh, I just realized I just, I just have to figure out a way to see better, which sounds ridiculous. But once I started looking into that, I found that there was some optometrists, some eye doctors that had worked with people, particularly younger kids. They didn't really do it with adults, but they worked with kids who were having trouble seeing at a very early age. There were things that they could do to strengthen their eyesight, teach them how to relax and focus at a distance and do these things to, to care for their eyes to improve their acuity when they're young because you're, you're more you know, formable when you're younger, you're more, you're more malleable, you can, you can change things a little bit easier when, when a child is young. But for an adult, and at this time I was in my 30s, it's unusual. But they were willing to, this one doctor in particular, Desiree Hopping, was willing to help me. And so that's what I did, because that was my only choice, to try to naturally, through exercises, improve my vision. So you, you apply again, and you have to take the eye test again. Yes. And this time you do manage to pass the yes. eye test. Yes, yes. Can you remember then, tell us about the call that finally came through. So the call, yeah, so after I, after I passed, you know, I was disqualified, then I was able to reverse it based on some new data that I showed them, and they were like, okay, as long as you can get by the eye test, we can consider you, and that's what I was able to do. So then at least I was going to be considered. And so I went back, I was living in Atlanta at the time, so I flew back to Atlanta from Houston and waited for a few months. And I knew the call was going to come in this one particular day. I had been part of sort of a... Uh, an information list of, uh, it was mainly military people who were on this list, who they would share information to this email list of people if they heard a rumor or they found something out or what was ever happening. And so uh, through this rumor list, someone had called the Johnson Space Center this one day, it was a Friday in April, and uh, they told them, well, everyone's going to find out Monday. So NASA didn't tell people this, but the word got out that the calls were coming in at Monday. And so I waited over that weekend, and then I knew the call, good or bad, was going to come to my house on that Monday. And so I, I stayed at home. I didn't go to work in the morning. I, I took the morning off because I didn't want to cry at my desk if it was bad news. And the phone call came in, and, and I got on the phone, and the voice on the other end said, Hi, Mike, this is Dave Leitzma, who's the head of flight crew operations at NASA. And he says, How are you doing today? And I said, uh, I don't know, Dave, you're going to have to tell me. And he told me, well, I think you're going to be doing pretty good because uh, we want to make an astronaut if you're still interested. And uh, that was the easiest decision I've ever had to make. Yeah, nah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. And I realized that, um, you know, if that was a no, I was back to square one again and I was going to have to reapply. And you know, hopefully my eyesight would have stayed where it was and, uh, you know, I would have just continued to, to work at it. Uh, I, mean, I was already 10 years working at it, three other rejections. So uh, I wasn't sure if I had paid all my dues yet or if I was still going to have to continue to try. But once that yes came in, it was a, just a gigantic relief, I guess, that, that I was picked, you know, and that, that I could now move to the next phase, which was becoming an astronaut and doing the best job I could and trying to get myself a, a flight into space and, and being part of that. But it, it's a call that changed my life. It was a moment I knew... I remember putting my son to bed. He was little. My, my Dan was um, seven, uh, let's see, five. He was nine months old. And I remember putting him down the night before, you know, rocking him to sleep and then picking him up and putting him in his crib as a little infant. And uh, looking down at him, I remember saying to him, Daniel, tomorrow we're going to find out whether or not your daddy's going to be an astronaut. And I knew that that day, that phone call was going to change my life one way or the other, and it certainly did. So in terms of the actual astronaut training, you're, you're going to be a mission specialist. Yes. You're not the pilot no. of the shuttle. <laughs> yeah, no. um, yeah. But in terms of training, everybody has to learn everything about the shuttle, don't they? 
Yes, everyone has to know a little bit about everything. So you do get a chance to, uh, in the simulator anyway, uh, fly the simulator. We do get jet training. We, we learn to fly as a co-pilot in the T-38 uh, training jet, which was just incredible. I mean, that is just a fantastic experience. Um, so we all, even all the mission specialists got to do that. But then we also get to learn about all the different systems. As mission specialists, we learn how to, given the opportunity to learn how to work the robot arm, how to do spacewalks. Uh, the pilots primarily concern themselves with the flying task of the space shuttle, of uh, learning how, learning the systems that they need to learn and the skills they need, taking their test pilot skills and converting them to flying uh, this magnificent spaceship, the space shuttle. But they also had to learn about spacewalking and working the robot arm and, and doing the experiments and being part of those crews. So you, you learn a little bit about everything. But then you focus in on a specialty once you, you know, once you get there and they kind of, you know, you kind of get a little more refined in certain areas from when you're, when you do get assigned to a flight. And then when you do get, a, so you want to see what you're good at and how you might fit in. And then when it comes to get assigned to a flight, then you get very specific of what your job is going to be for the mission. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mike Massimino. We're talking about his book, Spaceman, An Astronaut's Unlikely Journey to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe. And Mike, you're now basically a, an astronaut. I want to just mention something about the shuttle, first of all. So you talked earlier about how you know you, you were into space when you were younger and then somehow you lost that magic. And that's yeah. actually something that happened to, to everyone. I think it did. It happened to our country, and you know the the the, uh, the glamour of it. I guess, or the you know, there was it was such a big news item, and then we landed on the moon and took those steps. Neil Armstrong did those first steps, and then they even canceled the last three flights to the moon. There were three more flights. They went to Apollo seventeen, but they were supposed to be in Apollo eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, and which were canceled. So, yeah, the the will to go sort of ended or started to end with the moon program, especially. Um, and then it got turned over to the to the shuttle program. But yeah, the the newness of it kind of kind of went away. I think for me, it wasn't it wasn't just that, but it was also that I just figured I could never do that. You know, I think it was that was more it. I think I still was interested, but it was more of the fact that I just couldn't. You know, it can't happen. I remember yeah. the first shuttle launch, the Columbia, mm-hmm. when it yes. first happened. We yeah. were allowed to watch it at school. It was yeah. really exciting. Yeah. But then, as the you know the shuttle launches progressed. I mean, the thing was, I think down to the mark. You know, they basically marketed it that this was like an all-purpose correct truck, like a space truck, right. didn't they? Yes, <laughs> Not that's that exactly. Yeah, no, they 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 marketed it as, or I don't know if marketed it is the right way because it's our government doesn't really market, but it was, but sold or you know, the purpose of it was to be routine access to space, with the emphasis on routine, that it would be you know shuttles taking off all the time and even in those first early days I mean they, they flew a congressman one of our congressmen in, in space They flew, uh, two of them one senator one congressman flew in space they had guests from foreign countries you know the, uh, a Saudi Arabian prince flew on board you know people who were not necessarily at all career astronauts were flying uh, were flying in space including uh, we had a school teacher Krista McAuliffe who ended up uh, was killed on, uh, on the Challenger accident but they made it. They made it routine. I mean, even in the, in the, they made a scene routine. I mean, there was no ejection seats. It wasn't even life support. When, when they, we lost the, the, when the Challenger accident happened in 1986, they were not wearing pressure suits. Uh, they were wearing these. They were in regular, fancy looking, uh, maybe strange looking flight suits of the time with a motorcycle helmet, more or less, on their head. They did not have what we would normally wear as a, as a... So it wasn't like you were getting on a jetliner, but it certainly wasn't like what we were used to getting on a rocket ship. Uh, this the attitude of it. And it was, it was you know, this was routine every day. And I think as part of that, people started to feel like it almost was like another airplane taking off from an airport. It wasn't like you were launching into space. I mean, not, not quite that, but much closer to that than it had been in the Apollo days, for sure. But then... When you're stood there just before the launch and you're looking up at this thing, about to be prepared to go, and yeah. it doesn't feel like that, does it? No, for me, yeah, no. So you know, I, I after I got selected, even before I got selected, I was applying, and then after I got selected, it was all oh, this whole wondrous thing. We're going to fly on the space shuttle. This is so great, and they're all excited about it. And then I got assigned to the flight and train, and then the launch day was really a, it was launch morning. We, we had a, a early morning. Launch. It was right as the sun was coming up, but we had to be out at the launch pad in the middle of the night. We, so we got out there about 3 a.m. So it's pitch black, and the shuttle is fueled. I've never been around a fueled space shuttle because they don't fill the tank with fuel 
until right before the launch, a few hours before, because once you put fuel in that tank, it becomes a bomb, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing. So, uh, so the danger increases dramatically, and therefore they clear the area before they do that, and they don't let very many people around there. So it's kind of deserted out there. And the space shuttle itself seemed like it was alive. You know, it was making these ungodly noises, and there was water vapor that looked like smoke coming off the top of it. And it just looked like a beast. And uh, nothing I wanted to be around. And uh, I realized looking at it in the middle of the night like that, all lit up, that uh, the thought came to my mind was, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. You know, this maybe, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing for me to be doing. As a mission specialist, the shuttle has, you know, a larger crew than, than say, the Apollo missions yes. did. So as one of the mission specialists, you're basically... a a passenger on it at the launch. You're yes. in the back. Yeah, I was in There's underneath. No and then, yeah, in the bottom. Yeah, in the bottom, in the mid deck. Yeah. So what's downstairs? The, um, yeah, in the basement. So what's the what's the launch feel like? And and how do you you know? Can you remember the moment when you got to space? Certainly. Yeah. The uh, you know the the so it's a lot of it's more feeling. It is. There's no visual with it because you don't have a window in the mid deck. On the flight decks, you know, they, they do have windows, but I had no window on the mid deck and. So you feel this going on. You're tracking the countdown clock. You certainly know the different events. And the the beast starts to wake up even more as you get closer. The auxiliary power units start and control surfaces start getting tested. And you can, you can feel it become more and more alive. And then at six seconds, the main engines light. And you can feel though, the rumble of those and, and the whole... You don't go anywhere yet. You're still tied down to the launch pad. But those things start firing up. Uh, and it pushes the whole stack of the space shuttle system, the whole thing, forward as you're in your back. So you can feel yourself kind of, you're in your back, but you feel yourself lean forward, and then you come back, and you're upright right at when it gets down to zero. And at zero, the solid rocket's light, and then you move. And uh, before you even go, before you even reach the top of the tower, you're really going 100 miles an hour, and you go from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in just eight and a half minutes. It's immediate acceleration. You realize you're going somewhere. I felt like I was leaving home for the first time. It hit me right at a few minutes. I felt this idea that I was really leaving home. It was a strange sensation. You know, I'd left home before, but I always felt like I, you know, you're going from one part of the planet to the other. Like I came over here to London the other day. You know, I was still kind of on my planet. Right, I was still on our planet, but I really had this sense of leaving, uh, and and the power, the overwhelming power and speed that you could feel yourself attaining and the power below you just it's it's just magnificent really it's just this incredible display of power uh the rocket itself and there's no way to truly simulate that before you go i mean you go through simulations and preparation but to, that that power cannot be be represented or, or imitated in any way by any simulator so it was it was really the first time that i felt anything close to that and it's just overwhelming, just the power behind the rocket that you're riding. And this mission was a, a sort of maintenance mission for the Hubble mm-hmm. Space Telescope. Yes. Both, of your, both of your missions were. So let's talk about your first spacewalk. What mm-hmm. was that like? Uh, this, oh, yeah, so my first spacewalk on my first mission, uh, you know, I was, uh, we had trained for it, anticipated it, and I guess I, I thought, I, I guess I felt ready for it to do all the, the technical work. But to actually go out and experience this out in space was going to be different. I had practiced in the pool and gotten gotten good at spacewalking in the pool, in the water. We practiced in the water because you can kind of 
being neutrally buoyant in the water. You have weight pulling you down, but you can also have flotation in the buoyancy of the water. So that when you're in the water, they can use a combination of weights and flotation, so you're floating in the water column, just like you're kind of floating in space. So I've, I had gone through that training, but now I'm going to go out there for the real day. And uh, the hatch, you, you depress the airlock down to the vacuum, and so you're totally dependent on your spacesuit to keep you alive. And uh, then you open the hatch, and Jim Newman, my spacewalking buddy, who was an experienced spacewalker uh, from other missions, went out and set everything up. And then about 15 minutes after that, uh, it was time for me to go outside. And, uh, you know, I, I put my little head out there, and <laughs> and I see Newman up above me. He's holding on to a handrail on the space shuttle, looking down, smiling at me. And over his head behind him is Africa. <laughs> you know, just flying over Africa at the time. And I thought to myself, how am I ever going to get anything done around here? Because it was just so beautiful. It, the the you know the view of the planet during the spacewalk was a much different experience than inside the space shuttle. You have your space suit on, so I felt really like a spaceman. I wasn't just floating around in regular clothes inside of the space shuttle. And then you don't have the in the space shuttle or the spacecraft when you're looking through a window, your view is restricted by what you can see through the window. But when you're out in the spacewalk, you can look anywhere you want. You can turn your head, you can move yourself and look through your visor and see everything that's out there. And you can see the curvature of the Earth from the altitude of Hubble. is about 100 miles higher than the space station. So you see more of the curvature of the planet. It's just, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And that'll hit you all at once. Author I. Miller, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, we didn't mention that this is the Columbia, the space shuttle, that was the first space shuttle to launch. This is 2002, this mission, and barely a year later, the Columbia is destroyed on re-entry. Not only do you have, you know, a, a deep connection to that craft, but a number of your close friends yeah. are on board. And you were one of the last people to speak to them. Yes, I was. Uh, we had Columbia, our, our flight, 109. Um, the next flight on Columbia was 107. And 107 is a smaller number than 109. They were actually supposed to go before us. Uh, then Columbia, the spaceship, came back from... Uh, from California after an overhaul and had a bad paint job on it and they needed some more extra work they weren't anticipating to delay both of the flights and they decided that they were willing to delay 107 more than us so they flipped us in the order we got their spot they got ours and about a about nine months after we flew in March of 2002 they launched in January of 2003 and the last day of their mission they were going to they were going to return on a on Saturday 
And on Friday night before they went to bed, late in the afternoon, before their bedtime, uh, I got a call from their flight surgeon, Smith Johnston, who was a good, very good friend of mine, and this medical doctor, Smith, uh, was also a flight surgeon on my flight, very good friend of mine. He's talked about a lot in the book. Uh, he calls me up and says, hey, uh, I'd like you to be the mystery guest for the crew today. Uh, so this is their final debrief before they go to bed and wake up the next morning getting ready to go to, getting ready to come home. And so, um, so yeah, we did this little debrief, the medical debrief. He brought me in as a mystery guest. They had to guess who I was, and they did that pretty quick because he described me as a tall guy from New York, so they knew who I was, and I got a chance to speak to them over the, uh, over the comm link. And then the next morning is when we lost him. So, uh, yeah, I was one of the last people to speak to him. And what was that? What was the atmosphere like at NASA in the aftermath of that? The, uh, it was uh, a very strange time. I mean, immediately it was almost disbelief and just trying to take care of uh, the families was the main thing. And um, it was a lot of grieving going on. It was a nightmare pretty much when we lost him. That's the only way I would describe it. Um, and so the first order of business was to take care of the families and then to start working on what happened and figuring out what happened. And then we they figured out what happened. And then it, and then it was trying to, once we, once we knew that, then we had more of a purpose. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to, it was a debris strike on the way up. A piece of foam came off the fuel tank. A piece of debris came off the tank and hit the wing and put a hole in it. And that's why when they tried to reenter the hot gas from, from entry, because you have to slow down now, as from 17,500 miles an hour, all that energy has to come out. It comes out through friction, which generates thousands of degrees of heat, which entered the wing because it was a hole and, and took, it, took it off. So then we said, well, what do we need to fly again? And that was, we needed to be able to repair the space shuttle. We need to be able to inspect it and repair it. And, and those are the things we were working on. But also, it was also business as usual. We had people in space on the space station. So I was still working as a Capcom and supporting the people that were in space. You still had your regular training to do. But we were also, everyone was, was trying to contribute to how could we get flying again. And it was a, it was a very interesting period, I tell you, Neil. I look back at those, those times, it was very upsetting because we lost our friends. But then after that, you know, trying to get back up to speed and, and realizing we were going to come back, we were confident we were going to come back and fly the shuttle again. And with all these new procedures, it was it was a very interesting time, and we were still in a, I think, a period of mourning for quite a while. Um, but we were also it was this period of, a very interesting teamwork and pulling together to, to make sure the shuttle program would continue. There's an amazing scene in the book where you you go to the the hangar where they're assembling all yeah. of the debris for the inquest. Yeah, you know, I, I went down, they, they, they started a, over the months uh, after the accident, uh, almost immediately they started looking for debris because what happened was is that debris was showering down that day, came down in populated areas, like in streets of towns out in East Texas, things were falling from the sky. And so these were important things that were falling because there were pieces of the spacecraft. There were, unfortunately, pieces of our of our friends were coming out of the sky too, and so those were collected. But also pieces of the spaceship itself, which were going to give clues as to what happened. So all of the pieces of the spacecraft that came down were collected and sent to the Kennedy Space Center and then studied. And they were assembled. They had an outline of the space shuttle, gigantic on the floor, gigantic hangar down at uh, the Kennedy Space Center with, with a huge outline of the space shuttle 
and as pieces came in, they put them in the appropriate area on this on this big outline, this this you know this drawing of the space shuttle that they had put on the ground. And um, they mentioned to us at one of our meetings that once they had enough of this stuff there, that it was fine for us to go and take a look and to also view the items, the personal items of the crew that came back and pieces of their flight suits, equipment, and so on. We could see that, plus the pieces of the of the space shuttle itself. So, so I went down there with Dwayne Carey, and I'd flown on Columbia, the mission before um, this, before 107 was my mission, 109. And the pilot, my buddy, who was the other rookie on the flight, my classmate, uh, Air Force pilot Dwayne Carey Digger, and I went down there to view the, that wreckage together. It was over the... Was I think it was more a summer month. It was a few months after the accident uh, that you know that same year. Uh, we went down there and took a took a look around at, at all the all the stuff and took a look at what what was left of our spaceship. You went back on Atlantis in two thousand and nine, which was mm-hmm. the last Hubble mission. And mm-hmm. there's a story in the book which we won't go into because we're running out of time about how it was that you know that mission was touch and go. It was yes. cancelled and, and and then it was put back. Yeah. But, why on earth did you want to go back after what had happened? Yeah, I wanted um, just to go. I want. I mean, as far as like going back on any flight, um, it really didn't change after the accident. The accident didn't really change anything as far as the risk was concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's like, oh, geez, I didn't know this could happen. I mean, we certainly knew that could happen, and in some ways, it was a strange relief that it, you were so sad it happened to your friends, but. There was always there was this undercurrent, this very strange relief that it didn't happen to us. I felt very fortunate. I think about that a lot of how lucky I am to be alive because our flights got swapped, and it could have easily have been our us or my crew that didn't come home instead of my friends. And I, I mean, I, I very I, I miss them. I still miss them every day. I think about them, but I'm also grateful for the opportunity that I'm still here, um, trying to make the most of things by still being here. Uh, and it didn't change my, my desire to go. Um, it, it didn't really at all. I knew it could happen, and I wanted to fly again. So I just knew that it was maybe less likely I would fly again now because we didn't know what was happening. And I probably wasn't going to fly uh, an endless string of, of flights. And it certainly was going to give us a big delay. But I certainly knew I wanted to go back. And I, it didn't change things. I, you know, I think that having something that you feel is that important was important to me. I think, in some ways, I think it's it's almost a it's a gift or a blessing, or it's it's a it's a good way to go through life to have something that you feel that strong enough about, whatever it might be, that you're willing to risk your life for it. And I think, in some ways, it's it's very sad if you don't have something like that. I'm very grateful I had something I felt that passionate about that I thought it was it was worth worth taking that risk. I mean, beyond the obviously, you know, your personal goals and, and achievement of going, should we be sending people on space missions at all now? You know, you said that the original excitement of the mm-hmm. Apollo missions is obviously mm-hmm. different now. It's much more routine. You know, mm-hmm. lots of people have been in yeah. space. Now, obviously, we have yeah. you know science work on on, yeah. the, on the International Space Station, but space probes, robots, are, yeah. you know, they're cheaper. They could go to places that we can't do, mm-hmm. and they gain the public affection. The Mars rovers, you know, mm-hmm. Feli, you know, the affection yeah. when that landed on, on, on the comet. Should we still be sending people? Well, I, I think that the probes are great. You know, the the robots are great, 
uh, and they're going to get better and better at doing things, and they'll be able to do more of the things that people do. Right now, there still is, I mean, there's the practical, and then there's, I think there's the practical, and then there's the emotional side or the human side of it. From the practical side, you still need people in space because robots can't do everything. And we have never been able to fix the Hubble without people. And the rovers on Mars go extremely slowly. I mean, if you looked at, uh, if you looked at the amount of coverage that you could, with a person walking around Mm -hmm. in one day can do more than that rover can do in years because the rover has to move extremely slowly. Uh, and it can get stuck by a rock, and, uh, and that's what happened to one of the earlier rovers. That's what happened. It, it, if, a, if a person was there, be able to give it a push and be fine, but there's nobody there around to help it. So, as far as from an efficiency standpoint, people are still much more efficient than a robot in space. It's just very expensive to send people these places, so we send robots right now. I think robots will begin to get better, and maybe at some point in the future, they'll be able to do everything a human can do. But it's still, it's different. It's different than sending a human. And we get excited as people. We get more excited about sending humans. We do have an affection maybe for the Mars rover and for these other probes and what we learn. Even what the Hubble tells us. I mean, the Hubble recently found out that there was more evidence of water on one of the moons of Europa, which is a great discovery. And then more recently, that we have 10 times as many galaxies, which is just incredible. 10 times as many galaxies as we previously thought in our universe. 10 times as many. It's not like we just found a couple more. 10 times as many are out there than, than we know. It's just amazing what we're learning. And that, that was, I mean, you can, astronauts worked on Hubble to make it possible. But Hubble's up there doing this thing without people around it right now. But still, there's something about sending people that makes us pay attention. I mean, I, I just here in, in the UK, my friend Tim Peake, for example, has created so much excitement here. Having a person go to space can still influence, inspire young people, bring the, the story back to people and have us experience it at a different level that robots will never be able to do. We are people, whether we want to admit it or not. We are. And we might have an affection for machines, but we still have more an affection for what people can do. And I think there's going to always be the practical reason because people can, humans can make decisions, humans can be adaptable, humans can, can do things that, that machines will never be able to do. But even if you had a machine that could do everything what a person could do, I think we still want people to go and be our explorers at the front end so we can truly experience it. And without truly experiencing it with people, we're going to be missing out on something. So I've been talking to Mike Massimino. We've been talking about his book Spaceman, An Astronaut's Unlikely Journey to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe, which is out in the UK from Simon and Schuster. Mike, it's been an honour talking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, for it's time. been great. I appreciate everyone who's, who's listened through this. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.